From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. interesting in that this series is both very unaccessible and very accessible in terms of a modern sensibility. There are aspects of it that are absolute fantasy, both in the fictional sense, but also in the sense of being far removed from anyone's everyday reality. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Professor Ann Duncan and Jacob Goodson. Ann Duncan is Associate Professor of American Studies and Religion at Gaucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. She's the co-editor of the book Church, State Issues, in America Today. We're also speaking with Professor Jacob Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We're talking today about a recent book that they co-edited called The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I have to say that when I watched the series Mad Men, I watched the entirety of it with my wife, and we came away from watching that series with severely mixed feelings about the narrative structure, about the way that the story was told, and what responsibility the storytellers had to various communities in the process of telling that story. And I will say that I was pretty disappointed by the end of the series at how the showrunners had handled a lot of those issues. Now, when I took a look at your book and read it, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men, what I really appreciate about the book is how much it made me reconsider the conclusions that I made at the end of watching that series. You helped me with this book and with the essays that you collected to really see a very different face of the series Mad Men and a different complexity than I had seen in simply watching it. So first of all, I just want to congratulate you. You made me completely reconsider a cultural artifact that I had dismissed. Thank you both for that. You're welcome. But now I'm also aware that some people who are listening may not have a familiarity with the series that we're talking about. And so I wonder if we could, Professor Duncan, if you would just take a moment with maybe three or four sentences and give us a kind of a summation of what it is that we're talking about when we say the series Mad Men on American movie classics. What was the series about and what was the sort of main thrust of it? Sure. So Mad Men really centers around uh, the life of the central character, Don Draper, who's an advertising executive on Madison Avenue in New York City, in the sort of height of that sort of classic advertising era. The series follows from the 60s into the 70s in the context of a lot of different cultural, social, political change, and not only follows what's going on within the agency, but in the personal lives of the characters, certainly centering on Don Draper, but also in his coworkers, his 
wives, plural, girlfriends, <laughs> and all of the rest. Well, and so uh, let me then turn to Professor Goodson. So this project, as it came to be, what was your approach? And uh, was it an idea that was developed by you, Professor Goodson? Was it developed by Professor Duncan? How did this project come to be? That's a great question. The, um, the project, as you see it, came to be from, from both of us. The original idea actually came from an editor at Cascade Press named Chris Spinks who had just finished overseeing a book on The Wire from HBO. And he wanted a similar book on Mad Men. And so, and Duncan and I took that from him and conceived it and really first sought out essays before putting those essays into sections. And then once we had about 15 essays in hand, we decided how the book should be structured. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you had a general direction that you wanted to proceed in. In other words, essays that were looking philosophically and theologically at the series Mad Men. But if I'm hearing you right, you weren't really sure what the final shape of the arc of the analysis would be until you actually got the essays in hand. What was, and, and maybe uh, Professor Duncan, you can come in on this process too. What was it like to think about this shaping in the process of getting these essays? You kind of knew where you wanted to hit in the distance, but you didn't quite know the journey there. What was the shaping of that like as you began to get these essays? Well, I think when we put together the original proposal, we had some ideas for what the different sections might be. And I haven't actually looked back at those in quite a while, so that might be interesting. But we wanted people to propose essays that really spoke to them, that really kind of tied their area of expertise, whether that be, you know, social theory or philosophy, theology, how that tied into the series to see what people might come up with. And as those came in, we began to organize them, also knowing that there were certain areas that we definitely wanted to address, including race, gender, the dynamics of marriage, business ethics. And thankfully, we were able to find fantastic essays that sort of checked all those boxes. Now, I think oftentimes a layperson who might think about the study of philosophy, they may not realize that philosophy touches on exactly the kinds of issues that you just said, race, economic class, marriage, those kinds of dynamics. And so let me ask both of you, what is the value do you think, of this kind of pairing? So you mentioned that one of the inspirations for this book was philosophy and the television show from HBO, The Wire. What's the value of mapping this kind of theological and philosophical analysis onto an artifact of recent cultural history? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is that it does two things. It first provides a type of coherence to the artifact, to the story, to the characters and the plot of Mad Men bringing in outside philosophical arguments and theories helps with the coherence of the story, which I think is what uh, you mentioned at the beginning, that, that the book did that for you. But I also think, and, and what I found to be the case in my own essay, is that philosophical arguments and ideas really bring a depth to the characters and the stories that the show itself suggests but doesn't achieve on its own. And I think another way of thinking about that, too, is to sort of turn that on its head and that having this ready-made narrative that pulls in a wide variety of people who find it compelling for different reasons, it allows philosophers, theologians to explain otherwise inaccessible concepts and theories in a way that makes sense. And I think often about how I teach 
and how often I bring in stories to try to explain different concepts. So it sort of operates in that way as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson about a recent book that they co-edited, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Well, Professor Duncan, if I heard you correctly just a moment ago, you, you mentioned kind of turning my question on its head, and you said that you will oftentimes use the pop culture as a way of getting at what would otherwise by the layperson be considered to be kind of abstract concepts of philosophy and theology. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how that mechanism works in the classroom? Like, how do you bring in pop culture to help people understand theory? Well, I think as more and more television today directly addresses political, economic, ethical concerns, it's often an easy way to connect with students and the shows that they might be watching or even popular figures in popular culture that they might be following on social media or otherwise. I find that that's often very effective just as, you know, bringing in stories about my children or everyday life. But I think television in particular is starting to get a little bit more attention as a real art form that is worthy of analysis and, you know, these attempts to make connections with the world of philosophy, theology, and ethics. Well, now let me ask you a structural question about the creators of the show. And I realize that none of us in this conversation have access to the mind of Matthew Weiner and others who were running this show. Oftentimes, when you look at something like the critical analysis of Alfred Hitchcock, they'll talk about how much Hitchcock drew upon psychoanalysis in the construction of his narratives. And it's always been an active question for me whether Hitchcock was intentionally saying, ooh, I read this in Freud, and therefore I'm going to put this in the story, or whether he was doing it unintentionally. And so when I turn to your book, The Universe is Indifferent, about madmen. I look at essays like Gabriel Haley's countercultural Beatrice's Don Meets Dante, or Nsenga Burton's Don Draper, Double Consciousness, and the Invisibility of Blackness. Both of those essays took a philosophical structure, in one case Dante's Inferno, in, in another case, in the case of Burton, the use of Franz Fanon and W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, and it really kind of reread Mad Men in light of that analysis. And so my question to you both is how much do you imagine that these kinds of structural, analytical, theory-laden issues or questions or, or mechanisms were in the minds of the writers of the show, and how much of it is just simply a happy accident that they created a narrative that can be analyzed in these multiple ways? I think that what we do know, so I'll tell you what we know explicitly, then I'll tell you what, what my guess is. We do know that Matthew Weiner was reading and trying to implement for its civilization and its discontents throughout season six of Mad Men, and that that Freud's text was a guide for how Weiner was thinking through the characters in the plot of, of season six. My guess is, is that whenever Dante shows up with Don reading Dante on the beach, or whenever we see a line thrown out there like the universe is indifferent, that those are more suggestive, not explicit, but more suggestive connections with different philosophical arguments and theories that Matthew Weiner or other writers may, may know about, but didn't know how to fully develop. And Professor Duncan, do you agree with that, or would you take that in a different direction? 
I do. I think there's evidence from certain interviews with Weiner and others that they had some of these different theories and writers in mind to a certain extent. But I also think that certain essays, particularly Nasinga Burton's essay that you mentioned, are kind of a critique of the show and the show writers and creators as well in thinking about race and how little race is dealt with, frankly, particularly given the time period in which it's set. It's something that disturbed me as well. And I, I took as sort of implied in your opening comments there. And her attempt to sort of say, you know, when we talk about race, we're not just talking about non-white people. Let's talk about Don Draper's whiteness as you know, a very explicit reckoning with race is in some ways a kind of critique of the the show, even as it's very helpful in sort of illuminating the various ways in which the show does or does not unsettle, you know, troubling norms about race at the time or even today. Well, and, and so as we are moving towards the first break, I wonder if both of you could quickly tell me, as a result of collecting the essays in this book and reviewing them, did either of your assessments of the show change in a fundamental way from positive to negative or from negative to positive? I'm not sure if I would say negative or positive. It certainly deepened my appreciation of it. As I sat down to rewatch the show, once we signed on to this project, I started seeing all kinds of, of different themes and insights that I hadn't noticed the first time. And I anticipate that would happen were I to watch it a third. And so I think it sort of opened my eyes to the ways in which a lot of television can do that and has the potential to do that when it's done well. I think the best answer I can give to that is I was surprised to see a chapter defending Don Draper. And not only defending him as a person, but saying that the arc of the the whole arc of the show suggested that Don was a redeemed individual, or was a redeemed person. And the author Jackson Lacher used lots of water imagery throughout the show to argue for a very in-depth theological take on Draper's character, and that there was a a suggested baptism, and then hence redemption that was really driving the narrative and driving Don's character. I will admit that I never thought of that or never saw that (laughs) when I watched the show, either the first or the second run of it. And I'm not convinced by Leisure's thesis, but it, it does make me rethink the ways in which I only had a negative response to Don Draper's character. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson. They're the co-editors of the recently released edited volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson. They are the co-editors of the recently released book, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Well, I'd like to turn now to a concept that is encased in the title of your book, The Universe is Indifferent. That comes from an episode in the first season of the AMC series Mad Men, but it really points to the concept of nihilism. And one of the things that I found fascinating in the book, The Universe is Indifferent, is that you address the idea of nihilism in kind of two different phases like there are there's actually different styles of nihilism there's different ways of being nihilistic in the world and i think it would be good for our listeners to take a moment and line out what those two different forms of nihilism might be so in the introduction we talk about a complete nihilism versus an incomplete nihilism by which we mean is mad men destroying older values and replacing those older values with their own values such as uh, manipulation through marketing, the, the capitalist ideal of being the wealthiest corporation as being a market of success, etc. Or is the show just showing us that at the end of the day, all we have is indifference and, and nothingness, and that would be the complete nihilism. I think part of what is interesting about how the chapters go back and forth and speak to one another is that, although not ever explicitly, some chapters seem to suggest that there is a, a new value system that 1950s and 1960s version of corporate life is trying to usher in. And then other chapters are, are suggesting or saying that, you know, what Mad Men shows us is that really nothing matters. There, there is no morality. There is no ethics. There is no system or code, as Don Jaffer puts it, right? There, there is no system that's out to get anyone. Hence, the universe is indifferent. And so those are the two forms of nihilism that I think really do sort of provide the struggle or the tension in terms of, in terms of how the book came together. What I find fascinating in that answer is the one definition of nihilism assumes that there are some kind of transcendent values that can be surpassed or overthrown. The other, the complete nihilism that you talk about, gestures towards the possibility of almost a Lovecraftian universe where we are governed by forces that are utterly indifferent to us and our success or failure in the midst of those confrontations is, is a matter of non-importance to the cosmos. But in order to kind of get deeper into this question of nihilism, I want to bring in a concept that you address in your essay, Professor Duncan. You talk about the notion of social construction. And in your essay, you, you in particular are talking about the social construction of motherhood. But for our listeners' sake, when we're talking about the idea of social construction generally, as opposed to this notion of kind of universal objective values that are kind of out there for us to discover, what can an analysis that looks at social construction help us to understand about the way that we think about eternal values? I think this is one way in which the fact that this centers around advertising is so fascinating and so perfect, because they are in the business of constructing societal norms and laying out ideals of various types of lifestyles of, you know, appearances and all of the rest. And so that's always sort of in the background, even as individual 
characters are dealing with the ways in which society has kind of constructed ideals or paradigms of whatever it is they are striving to be. So there's a whole lot about womanhood, manhood, what marriage should look like, what fatherhood, motherhood should look like, what a successful career looks like. All of these paradigms are sort of circulating and we see all of these different characters really struggling with the ways in which they themselves are living up to that or not. And even the question of whether they want to live up to that or not, because we're also in the background of all of this is the counterculture revolution that's sort of upending all of these paradigms around gender, around societal relationships, even about vocation and career. So all of that is sort of in the mix throughout the entire show. And though I focus specifically on motherhood, it's certainly something that's a bit more universal. Well, let me ask a follow-on question to that, Professor Duncan. Is there something unique about the temporal setting of the show in the decade of the 1960s in America that is essential to this kind of rediscovery and uncovering of this social construction of values? Or is this a story that could have been told in any period using that same set of ideas? I think it certainly could be told at any time, but this is a particularly rich time for that narrative in that it's not hard to remind the viewer again and again that everything is sort of on the table and being questioned. Um, So we see, if you just look at any particular paradigm, if you look at the different marriages in the show, if you look at fashion, if you look at family relationships and parenthood, all of these different sort of themes demonstrate You know, you see examples of the 1950s sort of Donna Reed paradigm, but then you also see glimpses of other possibilities. And then the central characters sort of wrestling in that in-between space. So I think the fact that they're in New York City, the fact that you see both suburban and urban contexts, all of these political changes are in the background, that sort of keeps all of this at the front of mind for the reader and sort of ensures that every single character is dealing with these kinds of constructions in in one way or another. Professor Goodson, I want to turn now to your essay, which is looking at feminism within the analysis of Mad Men. And there's something that struck me about temporality, about the the passage of time that I want to ask you about. So you, you talk about two figures in your essay. You talk about the feminist thinker Simone de Beauvoir, and you also talk about the later radical feminist thinker Catherine McKinnon. And the 1960s had access to Simone de Beauvoir, but they didn't have access to Catherine McKinnon, who did most of her writing in the 1980s and early 1990s. And now we're past McKinnon and Beauvoir looking backwards. And so let me ask you, as history is unfolding in the 1960s and they had access to Simone de Beauvoir, that allowed for a certain type of analysis. Then looking backwards from the 1980s and 1990s to the 1960s, thinkers like McKinnon added a different level, a different approach to analysis. And now we stand looking back sort of on all of this. What is the role of time in accessing these different modes of analysis? How does that change the way that we see things from when we're actually living the moment in the 1960s to the first reflection in the 1980s to the 1990s to now what we might call the meta-reflection here in the in the 2020s? Um, yeah, great question. I'm not sure that I have a, a really good answer. I think that Professor Duncan and I's chapters work well together because we're we're both trying to think about 
how Mad Men actually depicts stories about the different waves of feminism. And so in terms of your question, I think that the fact that de Beauvoir's feminism was available to the time period that Mad Men is, is depicting, I think is significant in the sense that it's, it gives that particular, the particular period of the late 50s and 60s, not that they're living out de Beauvoir's feminism, but, but de Beauvoir's feminism can be used as a critical lens or judgment made upon certain characters in, in Mad Men. Whereas what I do in my essay is I, I sort of flatten the temporality that you're suggesting and try to use McKinnon and de Beauvoir's equally as a critique or judgment against the characters and, and the plot of Mad Men. So I suppose you could say that it's unfair to use McKinnon in this way, but I think that the purpose or that the helpfulness of McKinnon is that she provides a different type of feminist analysis in addition to de Beauvoir's feminism that brings out some of the difficulty or complexity in their relationships that Mad Men depicts. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson. We're talking about their recent co-edited volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Another aspect of this analysis that is inherent in the title, particularly the title of the show Mad Men, which gets brought out by a couple of the essayists in your book, The Universe is Indifferent, is the question of sanity itself and the notion of madness both as a functional neurological concept, but also as a societal construct. And so to what extent, for a person who picks up this book or for a person who's diving into the series Mad Men for the first time, to what extent is fantasy, to what extent is sanity, to what extent is departure from sanity a a set of themes for this series? Well, I think it's interesting in that this series is both very unaccessible and very accessible in terms of a modern sensibility. There are aspects of it that are absolute fantasy, both in the fictional sense, but also in the sense of being far removed from anyone's everyday reality. Uh, Madison Avenue, fancy suburban homes, the difference in time, certainly. But at the same time, there are all of these themes and life experiences that I think are deeply accessible. And many of those experiences are those scenes, those moments where we might attribute something like madness to the characters, where they get to breaking points, where they make irrational decisions. And I think those are moments when modern viewers can really see connections to their own experiences of being sort of betwixt and between different societal norms or expectations, or even their own expectations for themselves. Well, and Professor Goodson, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I really learned a lot from Carol Baker's essay on this question, when she argues that one way to view Mad Men is as a critique of rationalism in the sense of a sort of modern forms of putting too much faith in reason, independent of our passions and our emotions. And that she argues that Mad Men actually returns us to what she calls a, an erotic rationality a rationality that is necessarily tied to our emotions and desires and passions. And I, I think that's a very charitable reading of Mad Men, but I also think that it's a interesting and, and helpful argument for thinking about ways in which a television series, <laughs> to go back to Professor Duncan's points uh, from the previous segment, 
a television series can be used and be seen and be interpreted as a critique of philosophy, right? In this sense, as a critique of, of modern rationalism, uh, um, where in our ordinary life, we, we don't just live in terms of reason, qual reason, but we, we actively and accidentally and purposefully uh, all at the same time, we're always uh, mixing our desires with our, with our rationality. And so Mad Men does show sometimes to a faulty extreme, but Mad Men does show that there is a type of madness in this sense of, of erotic rationality within our ordinary lives that, that we, just, we just can't avoid. And to, to ask a follow-on question to that, Professor Goodson, one of the things that jumped out to me in Carol Baker's essay, The Erotic Reduction of Don Draper, is her use of Jean-Luc Marion's pairing of the notion of idolatry to this notion of madness that we're talking about. And that begins to bring in a theological and a religious dimension to these sorts of questions. So for our listeners, just briefly, can you help us to sort of follow what is Marion's thinking there? How does idolatry relate to madness in this particular setting? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I feel more comfortable telling you Baker's use of Marion than what Marion argues. But basically, Baker argues that Mad Men shows us the actual consequences in our everyday lives of making eroticism and love and desire an idol versus making it an an icon. And her argument basically runs that God intends for us to have a good use of our desires and our passions and our sexuality. And when we use those things well, we are using them in what Marianne calls an iconic sense, a, a way that directs us towards our ultimate purpose. More than that, Mad Men tends to show that we, our sexuality, our eroticism, our desires usually become an, an idol in Marian's sense of the word, uh, in the sense that they tend to rule us rather than to guide us towards our ultimate purpose. There's two ways to understand eroticism and sexuality, according to Baker, the way that God intends for our eroticism and sexuality to be, to be implemented and enjoyed. And then the idolatrous kind is when it, is when it rules us rather than leading us to our ultimate purpose. I so appreciate that answer, and I want to pivot from that answer to then present a question to Professor Duncan. So if we look at a different genre than the genre that Mad Men falls into, which is a sort of historical fiction, if we look instead at the genre of the horror movie, we can analyze horror movies, uh, particularly in their kind of Toby Hooper Halloween origins, as having a couple of simple tropes. And one of them is that those teenagers who are sexually promiscuous are always the first to die. And so there's a particular moral logic to the horror movie that hedonism leads to death. And I'm going to ask you then about the moral logic that you find in Mad Men, because Mad Men has, like the horror movie, hedonism as one of its key themes. So is hedonism in Mad Men's universe something that leads ultimately to the death urge and to destruction? Or is hedonism, the in your analysis or in the analysis of those that you've helped to edit here, is hedonism instead an engine for liberation and for growth? Which is, which is the more sort of accurate rendition of how hedonism and the erotic work in this universe? So I think that's a really interesting connection to make. And it's one that, that makes me think about the women in the series in particular, If we look at the three that I address in my chapter and looking at Betty and Peggy and Joan, 
and their ultimate fates. It's really interesting to see that Betty quite literally dies at the end. So a very sort of dire ending to her story um, where Peggy and Joan continue and flourish in their own ways. And I think it's particularly interesting to look at Joan who makes some of the more questionable choices around sexuality in particular and using that as a way to get the promotion that she had always been seeking. And she feels very conflicted about that. Her sexuality as a beautiful, voluptuous woman is certainly at the forefront throughout the entire series. And we see her really struggling with recognizing the power of that, but also realizing she wants to be recognized for other attributes. Um, But it ultimately leads her to a position of power. So I think the show sort of gives very different messages at different points in terms of the connections between hedonism and ultimate fate. But I think it shows just how complicated it is, particularly in the cultural context of the 60s and 70s. And Professor Goodson, I wonder if you want to add to that. So when we when we think about Mad Men as an ethical document, as a, first of all, is it even proper to look at Mad Men and expect it to have an ethics or a consistent way of presenting the moral economics of the world to us? Or should we simply say it's just a story? We shouldn't be asking for that. Well, I think that's a false dilemma. I think that for me, Mad Men depicts the limits of moral theory because there is no consistent moral theory that can be applied to the characters and plot of of the show but at the same time watching mad men and i certainly do this in my in my 100 level ethics class at southwestern college watching scenes from mad men and watching episodes from mad men really enhance the study of ethics and so when I say that it, it limits moral theory, I, I simply mean that one thing that I think any television series or even e- any novel teaches us is that a singular moral theory does not do our everyday lives justice. But at the same time, a television series or a novel enhances the ways in which we are able to implement different arguments and ideas from moral theories for a better and deeper understanding of of certain situations and difficulties within our ordinary life. I think that Mad Men is a great show precisely because it doesn't cower from really challenging us to think morally about some of the most uncomfortable and difficult situations that we still face today. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson about their recent edited volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road Podcast, It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guests today are Professor Ann Duncan from Gaucher College and Professor Jacob Goodson from Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We are talking about their recent edited volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Well, we talked at the beginning of the show about the fact that Don Draper is the central character to Mad Men, and there's a characterization of Don Draper from an essayist that we've mentioned before, Nsenga Burton, that I want to just take a moment and pull a few lines from. Nsenga Burton writes, Don is a military man, a square, who defended his country and then worked his way up from a furniture salesman to the head of one of Madison Avenue's most competitive advertising agencies. He defends the honor of women, keeps little boys masquerading as men in check, has a complex relationship to his bohemian lover who lives in the village and makes it home to his house in the suburbs to kiss his unquestioning wife and perfect son and daughter. He's Clark Kent. While hiding in plain sight, Clark Kent and Don Draper perpetuate the ideology and representation of American life in which neither of them fit. In a world defined by a certain type of whiteness that equates to success, Don Draper and his life are the physical manifestations of the American dream, while his psychological profile reflects that of a black man. And with that provocative introduction, I want to ask you both the following question. As a result of looking closely at Mad Men and looking closely at the essays in this volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Professor Duncan, who is Don Draper to you? Oh boy, easy question, huh? Don Draper is a conflicted man. I mean, he is quite literally someone with two identities. And so I think the show writers make that both explicit and implicit through his journey through the series. He is trying to meet all sorts of different ideals as a businessman, as an advertising executive. He is creative. He is someone who loves and enjoys the process of creation through his work in advertising. But he's also someone who enjoys a certain lifestyle um, and enjoys having the beautiful wife and the home and all of the rest. He's also someone driven by his own sort of hedonistic desires, as we see even in the very first episode, where we see this juxtaposition between his beautiful blonde wife at home and his beatnik mistress in the city. So I would, I would come back to that idea of confliction as central, and that's certainly kind of at the core of what Burton's arguing and in, in looking at this as double consciousness. And Professor Goodson, let me pose that same question to you. After going through this project and after reviewing AMC's series Mad Men, who is Don Draper to you? I, I think I agree with, with all of it. Professor Duncan's answer. What I would add is is the theological question of what it means to be sinful and vicious and to find yourself within a particular spiritual world as the season uh, the show ends with you know Don Draper sort of finding himself spiritually at least that's one interpretation. The two chapters that I really struggled with in terms of of challenging my own interpretations of the show and of Draper's character were were Jackson Lasher versus Seth Vignetta's chapters. And Seth basically says that Don Draper takes on this existentialist embodiment that whatever I do is the right thing to do because I'm doing it and I'm doing it with authenticity. And that Draper really shows us a kind of Nietzschean, Heideggerian 
character where he simply can do no wrong because there is no moral value to hold him to. Whereas, as I've said earlier, Jackson's essay is, is more emphasizing the way in which, despite Draper's refusal to acknowledge God's presence, that God still redeems Don Draper and Jackson's evidence or case for that is, is all the water imagery symbolizing baptism throughout the show. So here you, you not only have a case of the two different Don Drapers, is, is Draper just a person who asserts himself in the world and that the assertion itself shows that he is a authentic human being or is he someone who is a sinful, sinful vicious character who, who does need uh, a deity for their redemption? It also shows us the complete versus incomplete nihilism that Draper's character alone gets us back to that tension. Is Draper himself trying to simply do whatever he wants to do and assume that there is no, that there are no moral standards in the world, or at least none that apply to him? Or is he constantly trying to figure out what is the best thing to do, the best being here um, in the sense of, of goodness? What is the right or good thing to do in his relationships and in his work? I think the latter, I think Draper trying to do what is right, what is good, is seen in the Hershey bar advertisement where he, he, he blows it by, by telling the truth about his, his childhood and that who he really is and, and where he's come from. That seems to be a scene that suggests that he's trying to be a better person, that he's trying to be a, a truth teller, that he does not want to be an, an advertiser who works based on lies and manipulation. And so I think the, the struggle is real with Draper. And I, and, and I also think there's lots of issues about his own masculinity and, and what it means to fit in with the other men in the office. And he, he doesn't seem to really strive to fit in with the other men. You know, what does that mean for him as a, as a man's man versus as someone who's simply trying to, to make peace with himself on a daily basis? And now I want to turn the question inside out and ask, who is God, <laughs> Professor Goodson, in the universe of Mad Men? What is the character of God in Mad Men? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the only explicit answer we get to that is, uh, we get to that question is through Peggy's Roman Catholicism. And it seems like the God that is made present through the characters and through the dialogue is the God who Peggy is struggling with. And I don't know if you can generalize and say that that's the God of the show, but it does seem like Peggy's character is quite significant theologically because she's a believer, but not a practicer. And I think that that's a good depiction of the type of existentialism that the show is trying to get at, that Peggy sees herself as part of this very hierarchical, institutional life of the church. She wants to please the priest in some of the dialogue she has with the priest, but she also wants the priest to know that she thinks that the church is very backward when it comes to issues of womanhood. And so I would say that the most explicit answer we get to your question is through Peggy's struggle with the Roman Catholic God. The implicit God, I think, is the God as does God simply want to affirm a type of niceness between human beings, or is God a, a wrathful God with judgment? And I think that that's sort of a behind-the-scenes the type of 
theological question that the show raises. You know, if you take Seth's chapter, it seems like if there is a God in Mad Men, God simply just wants us to be who we all are. But if, if you really see racism and sexism and you want to really substantiate the critiques of the racism and sexism that we see in the show, I think you can make a, a theological case that this, this is not the way God intended humans to be with one another, that sexism has no theological warrant and racism has no theological warrant because it violates the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the, 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 that we're all created in the image of God. And so I think there is a tension between does God simply want us to be who we are and maybe nice to each other, or can the Jewish or Christian God be assumed as the ultimate judge of the racist and sexist tendencies that we see throughout Mad Men? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson about their recent edited volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Well, Professor Duncan, I want to take what Professor Goodson just said a moment ago and turn that question then to you. So thus far in the in this portion of the conversation, we've been assuming, and Professor Goodson's answer about an explicit and implicit sort of characterization of God in Mad Men, we've assumed the kind of Abrahamic monotheistic notion of God. But I also want to ask you the question, do you see that kind of moral force, moral center in Mad Men, or do we see a more type of polytheistic cosmos where there are competing powers of morality of varying types of moral force that are literally at war with one another. I guess what I'm asking, first of all, is are you more convinced by Professor Goodson's characterization or by a characterization that would say there are more forces at work in the narrative than simply a god that's hard to characterize? This may be my sort of social scientific historical perspective coming in, my tendency not to see things first through a philosophical theological lens, but I sort of see theological interpretations of what's going on in this show as primarily external. I don't see a lot of that happening within the lives of the characters themselves or even within the narratives created by the showrunners. I think when we talk about those paradigms and social constructions I was talking about earlier, those are all changing under the feet of the characters at any given moment, you know, in that historical context in which they're living, these standards that they're trying to hold themselves up to moral, ethical, in terms of how they shape their lives are external from society, um, internal from those individual characters, upbringings and surroundings. But I don't see a lot of theological reflection on their own parts. Even Peggy, I think, even as she is so very clearly understanding her Catholicism as an important part of her identity, she is constantly struggling with this idea of parenthood, motherhood, the role of the woman. Even when she has this child, she doesn't even want to hold it. There's a real rejection of the institution and not a whole lot of attention to her own sort of devotional practices. So I think this is a world in which all of that is shifting and changing where a religious sensibility could provide a real grounding, a sense of something eternal and unchanging, which could really mitigate a lot of the change and confliction that these characters are experiencing. But I don't think many of them are really engaged in that and what we see. 
Don Draper at the end and his, you know, Coca-Cola commercial moment on the hillside gives us a glimmer that maybe he's beginning to dabble in that. And he has his moments of philosophical reflection, but I don't see a lot of evidence of much depth to that or sustained commitment. I have to say, I view that final moment of Mad Men where he's on the hillside and then he has basically, we see the glimpse of the Coca-Cola commercial. I viewed that so cynically at the time. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I appreciate the fact that these essays and your comments help me to reevaluate that moment and see some other possibilities there. But Professor Duncan, I, as we're coming to the close of the conversation, I want to ask each of you a variation on this question. And you can interpret this question, Professor Duncan, any way that you wish in your answer. Is Mad Men a good show? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I think it has incredible entertainment value, is um, constructed in a very masterful way. Um, there aren't many shows that I would watch more than once. This is one I feel I could watch over and over again. And I think that's not because they perfectly and satisfactorily address all of the different themes that are so important and so timely, you know, around race and gender and, and all of these other ethical questions. But the complexity of the characters and these narrative arcs raise questions that I think can lend themselves to um, further reflection and insight that goes far beyond what the individual characters realize or experience. And Professor Goodson, I want to ask you the same question. And again, you may interpret it any way that you wish. Is Mad Men a good show? I would also say yes. Yes, it's a it's a good show from an aesthetic perspective in the sense that it is enjoyable to watch. I too, like Professor Duncan, could could watch it over and over and see things uh, see new things each time I watched it, but it's also a good show in the in an ethical perspective that it I think it does bring to light many of societal ills and moral problems that other shows tend to cower away from. And I find Mad Men so compelling, and I really wanted to edit this book with Professor Duncan precisely because I thought that Mad Men as a series really allows itself to be in those areas of discomfort where we find and what we talk about is moral problems, um, whether it's in how to stay in a marriage where there's um, so much infidelity, whether it's the issues of, of racism that we've talked about, a completely sexist culture in the workplace. Mad Men does not shy away from those questions and from those problems. There's certain scenes that I watch with my students in ethics, and sometimes the students will say, is that really how the 1960s, <laughs> is that really what the 1960s is like? My parents or grandparents never confessed those times, revealed those, the, those situations to me. And so it, it, I think it shows in a younger generation the hard reality that their parents, their grandparents lived with and lived with and, and lived in, and perhaps even contributed to themselves. And in that sense, I, I think it's a it's a good show. It's a necessary show. I think that the ending can be taken as with the cynicism that you suggested, or it can be taken as a sign of redemption, as Jackson Lacher's chapter argues in, in our book. 
clearly people should watch the entirety of the series if they can, but if they don't have the time to, as a sort of final question for each of you, and I'll start with you, Professor Goodson, is there one episode in particular that you would recommend for a listener to go and watch in order to get what we're talking about in terms of the complexity of the story and the moral arcs and the philosophical implications of the AMC series Mad Men? Let me start by avoiding your question, then maybe I can get to an, uh, to an answer. I would say season six, if you're going to only watch one season, to watch season six. Season six shows almost all the difficulties that we've talked about. They're all in one season. We see Don's personal struggles. We also see the, the racism and the sexism that we've talked about. If there's one particular episode... I suppose I would say if you're only going to watch one, watch the very last one. My reason for that is that it's the only episode that shows the extreme of Don's vulnerability. And I think that, that in the scene where he chooses to hug the character who becomes sort of the anti-Don, right? The one, the, the man who no one sees in life. When Don chooses to hug that character, I think that that may be the most hopeful act that we have from Don Draper. So, so that act itself, I think, is worth, is worth watching that episode. And Professor Duncan, I would ask that same question of you. If, if you could recommend just one episode of Mad Men to our listeners as a way of kind of getting an encapsulation of the various themes and issues that we've been talking about, what would you recommend? So the episode I'd choose actually doesn't focus on Don Draper, but on Betty Draper and this is one that I talk about in my chapter as well, but it's in season one, episode nine, I believe, titled Shoot, S-H-O-O-T. And this is an episode where Betty Draper, the quintessential housewife, beautiful, docile, keeps a lovely home, has the two children, is finally given an opportunity to sort of stretch her vocational muscles a little and is... Um, Don arranges a modeling job for her that she goes on, doesn't go well. She comes home and we see her frustration, but she's also trying to sort of put it behind her and step back into this domestic role and has this very tense, but also very sort of scripted kind of scene with her husband making him this lovely dinner and sort of putting on this face of complete contentment in returning back to domestic life. And the next morning, we see that continue with her children, where they talk excitedly about going to the club pool to watch them fill it for the season <laughs> as the big highlight of their day. She has her smiling face on and then proceeds to go outside, pick up a shotgun and shoot her neighbor's birds that have been bugging her relentlessly. So to me, it's sort of a perfect encapsulation of these sort of false faces and presentations that the women in the show put on, but also this underlying frustration, resentment, anger, and even rage. Well, Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson, like I said at the top of the show, your edited volume, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men, made me reassess the viewing of the series Mad Men that I had, and it made me want to go back and rewatch it. And I learned a great deal from the various voices that you gathered together into this volume. Thank you, first of all, for the work that went into creating this book, but also thank you both for taking time today to talk to me and my listeners about it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
We've been speaking today with Professor Ann Duncan and Professor Jacob Goodson about their recent book, The Universe is Indifferent, Theology, Philosophy, and Mad Men. Ann Duncan is Associate Professor of American Studies and Religion at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, and Jacob Goodson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.